This is a country that has passed um, an open governance law and yet is very harsh on many rights lawyers and has, as you may know from our news, detained Professor Feng Chongyi, uh, who is the Associate Professor of Chinese Studies from UTS, who is still in detention in China. This is a country where on every street corner, in every nook and cranny, there seems to be a very uh, contradictory dynamic and a multimedia dynamic at all. Sometimes when visiting, I have the impression that tragedy and comedy come together uh, in the same uh, place. This is a land where desperately poor and unhappy petitioners risk everything, including black jails, for the sake of their dignity. It's a country where there is a large middle class that seems to be opposed to multi-party elections. This is a country where money-making is called socialism, where there are, as you know, more billionaires, skyscrapers, and card-carrying communists than in the rest of the world. Enter Min Xinpei's China's Crony Capitalism. It's a wonderful book published uh, in 2016. It is on the must-read list of the Financial Times. The Economist in London, it's the topic of tonight's uh, talk, has said that it's essential reading and that it's quietly devastating. This is, I think, very high praise for uh, a book. And um, Professor Pei uh, Min-Sin will tell you about the thesis of uh, the book uh, tonight. And so it just leaves me to say a few words about him. Um, I want to welcome you warmly to, to Sydney. I uh, think that most of us know about your work. Uh, you are the Tom and Margot Pritzker 72 Professor of Government uh, and the Director of the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College in California. Uh, Pei Minxin was born in Shanghai. He's um, a non-resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He's also a global associate of the Sydney Democracy Network, I'm very proud to say, here at the university. He has published widely in foreign affairs, in foreign policy, in the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and in many scholarly journals. His previous books include much discussed, much analyzed, much argued over China's trapped transition, the limits of developmental autocracy. And his new book, uh, China's Crony Capitalism, The Dynamics of Regime Decay, has had a very warm and enthusiastic, and I would say also controversial, reception. Um, I want to uh, say a very warm welcome, Huan Ying, uh, to you, uh, to um, either Xi Ni or Shui Li. Uh, the Chinese um, local community can't quite agree on the name of our town, but in any case, welcome to Sydney, and we look forward very much to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much, uh, John. Uh, it's a real pleasure for me here, uh, for, for me to be here today. I, uh, uh, this is my second visit to Sydney, to Xuanyi, Xinyi. Uh, uh, I actually prefer Xuanyi. I think it's much more poetic. Uh, and uh, uh, today I uh, just want to share with you uh, uh, my, uh, uh, some of my own findings uh, about corruption in China. Uh, currently, capitalism 
my, my editor picked the, word, uh, the, the title Crony Capitalism. Initially, I wanted to call it Crony Communism because it's not, uh, 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 there's a lot of element uh, in the story that uh, uh, is related to the political system, uh, which still retains uh, parts of its communist uh, characteristics. Uh, let me just uh, uh, first give you uh, the background of this uh, 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 book project. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was uh, doing another book. Uh, that's the book of, uh, uh, that's called China's Trap Transition. And in researching for that book, I discovered a new phenomenon. Uh, I've, for some reason, I've been attracted uh, to the, uh, the problem of corruption for a long time. But in doing research for that book, I found that uh, why uh, uh, some corruption cases involved a lot of people. In Chinese uh, uh, terminology, these cases were called wuan or cuan an, or a nest of corrupt people or a string of corrupt people, very figurative. Uh, but more than 10 years ago, I, uh, I noticed the problem but didn't pursue it. Around five years ago, I began to uh, study the question, uh, study this issue much more seriously because I uh, noticed that this was a problem that was not, uh, what should I say, uh, reported in the 1980s. I did a search, a keyword search. Uh, you know, uh, in uh, if you're a scholar, you use this uh, Chinese uh, electronic data source. It's called, the Chinese word is Zhongguo Zhuang, or China Knowledge Integrated uh, uh, Network, uh, or resource. Um, excuse me, I have a <coughs> really bad cough, so I have to put some cough suppressant in my maps and, uh, so that I can complete my sentences. Um, if, you, uh, if you type in these two keywords, you found that there were no references to Wuan or Chuan'an in the 1980s. And the first time uh, you found references to these two terms was 1992. So the question is, could there be similar uh, corruption cases? I call them collusive corruption. That is, individuals collude with each other in perpetuating, perpetuating, uh, uh, perpetrating corruption uh, corrupt activities in China. Uh, so I went back to uh, newspaper reports, accounts of corruption in the 1980s, and you really did not see collusion among government officials. So right away, as a researcher, you are presented with a very intriguing question, that is, why certain phenomena did not exist prior to 1992, and after 1992, uh, you can say after 19, early 1990s, uh, these cases uh, became quite prevalent. Today, according to local government reports and one national survey, uh, National Audit Office survey, about 40 to 45 percent of all corruption cases in China are characterized as Wuan or Chuan'an, 
or collusive cases. The Ch I found one official Chinese definition of what these two cases mean. Uh, when they talk about Wu or a nest of corrupt officials, the official definition is that within a very short period of time, they find three or more officials uh, engaging in corrupt activities in one unit. This could be a local government, a local government agency, an air, <coughs> and a uh, state-owned enterprise. It does not tell you whether they actually uh, have direct contact with each other. But that's, later I will explain why I think they have either uh, direct collusion or implicit collusion. Uh, the other class of cases is much more, I think, um, self-explanatory. That is, uh, if they find one lead that results in the arrest of three and more individuals. So these are cl clearly connected uh, cases. Uh, so if you, uh, I will explain sort of the, the collusion part later. Uh, but uh, the puzzle is, uh, what kind of systemic change has led to the emergence of collusion? Because this is really a very fascinating question because we, uh, uh, we know that uh, individuals are in uh, driven by incentives. And incentives are shaped by systems. So there has to be something that changed in the Chinese political economy that motivated individuals to collude or cooperate illicitly with each other in the conduct, uh, in the uh, uh, conduct of corrupt activities. So I began to look for plausible suspects, and I think I found one. That is, uh, in uh, I in the book, I identified privatize, privatization, or uh, the more euphemistic uh, official term is property rights reform. In the 1980s, the Chinese government did not allow any change in property rights. Property rights have two uh, components. One, ownership rights, who owns a piece of property. The other component is control rights, who actually control the use of the property. Uh, many of you are owners of Australian corporations or American companies. But you don't control. The control rights are exercised by managers, your owners. They don't own, but they. Uh, so uh, this is a very quick explanation of what property rights mean. Uh, in the 1980s, the Chinese government centralized both control rights and ownership rights. Starting in the 1990s, <coughs> the Chinese government, in order to make state-owned property more productive, decided to decentralize control rights. And also, they uh, allowed uh, privatization. And the kind of privatization in China is quite strange. Uh, in, it looks like privatization. It is really privatization, but it's also not in a very strict legal sense, not privatization. Two classes of assets. Uh, ownership never changes. Land and mineral resources. You look at Chinese documents, they're always owned by the state. These are just, but 
the user rights or the control rights now can be privately owned. Even more important, the process of the, the, uh, the power, the authority to determine who will gain those control rights has since the, uh, the early 1990s been progressively decentralized. In other words, all of a sudden, in the Chinese political system, a lot of individuals in the government, officials, now have the ability to determine who can gain access to very valuable assets. So this presents a, an unprecedented opportunity to gain, to, be, to become rich. Because if you get hold of an undervalued, a piece of undervalued state asset, you can become very wealthy. The key is to get hold of it. But, in, but there is a catch. That is, because in China, a lot of officials all of a sudden have uh, control over these rights, you have to gain their cooperation and consent. So if you do not gain, uh, suppose five officials have to sign off um, a, a transaction authorizing the transfer of the use of this land from the state to a private entrepreneur. These five officials have to all give their okay. So if you want to get this piece of land below market price, somehow you have to bribe all five of them. Otherwise, if one of them does not give you the okay, then the deal does not take place. This is basically the mechanism that results in collusion. That is, if you are a private entrepreneur, you have to collude with all five of them. And uh, otherwise, they will, the uh, technical term, the academic term is called mutual veto. Because if I'm one of the officials and I'm, I'm not getting a piece of the pie, I'm going to block the deal. So, so this is essentially the, sort of the, the theoretical story behind crony capitalism, is that in other words, cronies and officials collude or cooperate illegally with each other in a scheme of enriching each other. And uh, the, in this cap, chronic capitalist story, I have to emphasize that the greatest beneficiaries are capitalists. When you look at officials in China who are accused of uh, accepting bribes in tens of millions of yuan, it's peanuts compared with the enormous wealth generated by private entrepreneurs from undervalued state assets. Uh, so the, uh, uh, even though uh, when some officials these days uh, can pocket something like 200 million yuan, 300 million yuan, unprecedented. Uh, if you look at the 1980s, uh, there was a story, I, I wonder whether uh, those of those of you in the audience from China uh, are, uh, are old enough to remember this. It was a very sensational story in the 1980s. The Chinese word, it's a, uh, by, uh, it's a reportage, it's a, 
uh, a journalistic expose uh, done by a very famous investigative reporter called Liu Bingye. And uh, uh, the title of that story uh, uh, was uh, uh, the, the Chinese called Ren Yao Zijian. Uh, the English translation is between man and monster. And the culprit, the lead culprit of that story uh, was a woman called Wang Soxing. And her totals, the total amount of her uh, corrupt, in- corrupt income was 150,000 yuan. Of course, in the 1980s, that was a huge fortune. She was executed. But even if you factor in inflation, 150,000 yuan uh, is much less than 200 million uh, yuan, 250 million yuan. Incidentally, that's the amount uh, credited to uh, the former party secretary of Yunnan province, uh, Bai Enpei. Uh, in other words, how, uh, and when you look at why re- officials these days can gain so much uh, bribe, uh, bribery income from private entrepreneurs. There's only one explanation. They get, uh, in, through their use, through the misuse of the, their power, they give away undervalued state-owned assets. And they gain a cut, 5%, 10%, uh, but 80%, 90% of the profit would go to private entrepreneurs. But here's a puzzle. That is, when you look at uh, most of the corruption cases or the development of chronic capitalism in China, uh, we don't know about very high-end corruption in China because Chinese, the Chinese press does not report, uh, does not give us information. As a scholar, we can only rely on official data, on credible official accounts. But the Chinese official press does not reveal details about corruption involving ministers and about really hard. In very rare cases like Zhou uh, Yongkang, then for political reasons, you gain a lot more information. But most of the time, you do not. So uh, probably one day we will know that at very high end, the Politburo, Politburo Standing Committee level, then uh, it's, a, it's a very different a kind of corruption. But based on what I, uh, I've read, mostly through the Western media, is that at the very high end, those who are connected with political power, they actually do not, uh, their main source of profit is flipping. That is, the, the, the Western word is, uh, the English word is flipping. That is, so they can gain a piece of state-owned asset. They do not uh, run it. They do not operate that piece of uh, property or asset. They simply ser- sell it very quickly uh, for profit. That's their uh, source of income. So by and large, I think we can probably make a pretty uh, bold statement. That is, uh, Chinese officials uh, do not want to directly own and operate undervalued state enterprise, uh, state-owned assets. So the puzzle is, we all know the profit potential. It's huge if you can directly control a piece of land, 
a peace of mind, and government officials can own this, right? Can, they, they have the power. But why don't Chinese government officials or haven't Chinese government officials directly uh, owned or become private entrepreneurs? Why are they willing to settle for peanuts when they actually have the power to gain the lion's share of the profit? The answer is quite actually simple. That is, when you look at Chinese officials, they, are, they face enormous constraints in this story, in trying to become very wealthy. Uh, the first constraint is that Chinese officials who have the power to determine the allocation of undervalued state assets must have spent at least 20, 25 years in the system. They've invested a lot in the system uh, because you have to have enough power. And in the Chinese system, you have to be a xianzang or xianwei suji, a county magistrate or a county party secretary at least. So a county party secretary uh, typically is somebody in his late 30s if he's fast or in his early 40s. So we're talking about at least 15 years. Uh, you spend 15 years in the system. So the, the economic term is that they've incurred a lot of sunken cost. So abandon, once you're party uh, secretary of a county, and even you, you can have the power to get that piece of land, but you have to abandon your party position because you cannot be a party secretary uh, and the CEO of a development company at the same time. The party doesn't allow this. So you have to choose one, and the party secretary uh, does not want to give up his uh, position. So he's, aver he's averse to giving up political power. That's why he's willing to settle for 5%, 10% of the potential profit. The second reason is that any capitalists need risk capital. You actually have to invest. You have to have some, uh, even if you want to acquire a piece of undervalued asset, you have to put up some money. You just cannot take it for nothing. And most Chinese officials simply don't have the risk capital to invest. Uh, and the third uh, reason is that uh, there's a mismatch of skills. Chinese officials are very capable politicians, but they don't have the commercial skills, uh, talent, first to identify undervalued assets, and second, know how to realize the hidden value. So that's why they just, unlike a very talented private entrepreneur who can come along and immediately uh, know that piece of property can be turned many, can generate many times profit. So that's why when you look at uh, the history of the development of Chinese colonial capitalism, uh, that the real winners are private entrepreneurs. This is fine. Actually, I think uh, in the whole scheme of things, uh, the, so the, the moral aspect, the social inequality aspect aside, I think uh, colonial capitalism represents progress from crony communism because it produces a much more diverse elite. Well, that is a side, okay. Uh, just as a, sort of a, a uh, uh, if you want to uh, uh, make some, uh, uh, pass some value judgment. 
others. So I, uh, uh, so this is uh, uh, essentially the uh, sort of the theoretical framework that you you identified suspect. The suspect, as I repeat, is that the privatization story is the driver of chronic capitalism. Chronic capitalism in China emerged largely because a huge amount of state-owned wealth has been converted to private use and generated enormous profits. And those profits have benefited a relatively small group of people. So that's chronic capitalism in China. Now, uh, uh, first let me explain uh, the sources because studying corruption or chronic capitalism is very difficult. This kind of behavior is concealed. Nobody's going to walk around wearing a badge, I'm a chronic capitalist, right? <laughs> and watch me, and this is how they do things in uh, uh, private banquet rooms, in massage parlors, in God knows where, you're not gonna see. So how do you get the evidence? Unfortunately, we can only rely on official reports. So in my case, I looked at, I assembled 260 cases of collusive corruption involving more than three people, and uh, uh, the information could come from detailed news reports, court judgments, uh, and uh, prosecutors' charge sheets. Uh, in other words, uh, they're all very, very credible official sources. The problem is really selection bias. You always get accused of selection bias. Yes, there's selection bias because it's not random. Uh, you can only rely on what is provided to you by the official media, and the official media pick those cases on the basis of prosecution. And we know that prosecution in China is a selective process. The government, the Chinese Communist Party to be exact, decides whom to prosecute for corruption, whom not to prosecute. So there can be a lot of politics involved. So the question is, how reliable is the evidence? Now, uh, in studying corruption, there are basically two kinds of approaches. One would be look, looking at perception of corruption. So they would, uh, for example, if I were a researcher, I would pass out questionnaire to the people in the room, do you think the uh, city is corrupt or not? On a scale from one to 10, 10 being most corrupt, uh, one being least corrupt, where do you think uh, Sydney is? So those of you, who care to fill out the form, will fill out the form, and they come, and I average, and I produce a number. Well, the question is, do you think the number actually means anything, right? Uh, because I probably would say the number means nothing, because what do you know about Sydney? Actually, do you know anything about the mayor? Do you know anything about the mayor's assistant? Uh, so this is one kind of corruption data, and you know that it's problematic. The second kind of research focuses on a case study. It's very, this kind of study is in and by itself very reliable. For example, a few years ago I read an academic article on the practice of buying and selling office in the region in Heilongjiang, actual entire province. And uh, that's a very good read, but the problem is that, well, I know something about that region, but what about other countries? Uh, places. So essentially, uh, the study, the research on corruption uh, so far 
uh, is constrained by the availability, availability of data and the kind of data we have is perception, not very reliable, or uh, in-depth case study, reliable but not very representative. So I try to uh, uh, do something that has actually not been done. That is, you assemble a class uh, uh, of corruption cases. Uh, so enough numbers, 260 is a big enough data, uh, data set, and then try to extract some quantitative data from this set, and also to extract qualitative data. That is, uh, the other than, I think the more problematic aspects are the quantitative part, because you really do not know. But I, uh, I feel more comfortable, uh, I felt more comfortable after I, after I uh, began to collect more and more cases, because uh, I don't, don't know whether, the, uh, I'm, I'm sure some of you are very good at st statistics. Uh, that is, if you uh, start with, say, 150 cases and you go up to 260, uh, the median number doesn't change. That actually means you have a pretty good data set. That is, things that the, uh, the numbers cluster around the median. If you have, if you put a number and then the median changes a lot, then it's, uh, yeah, the data set is not very reliable. So uh, I felt probably it's okay. But still, I always ask people, ask my readers, my colleagues, that is, you treat this with sufficient caution, right? You know what you're getting. Uh, then, but the more interesting part is really the qualitative description, because when you read to so many cases, you actually notice patterns. Not captured by numbers, but you do notice uh, very important behavioral patterns. And uh, so that's the, sort of how I approach this uh, 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 this question, uh, and because I want to lay it out, otherwise, uh, I think in the question Q and A session you will uh, uh, answer this question. So uh, now uh, let me move on to the more substantive part. The question is collusion. What do you mean by collusion? Is that uh, how do you how can you pr prove that Chinese officials and uh, Chinese officials collude with each other and collude with businessmen? Colluding with businessmen is quite easy because you can find who pays bribe to whom. So that's the right. What about officials who collude with each other? Because one of the uh, uh, hypotheses is that because of the threat of mutual veto, officials have to collude with each other in order to uh, benefit from this enterprise. In uh, the description of corruption cases, uh, direct collusion is easy to identify because uh, news reports will identify who, which official went to whom, they shared, sport, they shared bribes, they talked about this, so that's easy. But what about implicit? What about cases where you use, the government identifies uh, corruption in one unit, in one government agency or state-owned enterprise, but they do, the news reports do not actually tell you whether official A colluded with official B. Uh, I've, uh, I found three pieces of evidence that indicate 
that they actually do. I call this implicit collusion. That is, they do not necessarily uh, engage in joint criminal activity, but they know of each other's criminal activity. So knowledge of each other's criminal activity actually facilitate collusion because it's very easy. If I know that my colleague is taking bribe from the same uh, pri private businessman, then he becomes implicitly part of the same conspiracy ring, and I will, I will not, uh, I will, uh, uh, I will not denounce him. He will not denounce me. Both of us are safe. Uh, you find one piece, first piece of evidence is that when you look at official do uh, court documents, court judgments, you will find that many officials would receive reduced sentence for denouncing their colleagues' criminal wrongdoing. And uh, uh, the Chinese word is zhong da li gong, jian ju jie fa zhong da li gong. Uh, which, uh, which really means uh, that denouncing other people's, other uh, colleagues or providing useful incriminating information. So you, this is a very uh, convincing piece of evidence which shows the Chinese officials actually know of the criminal activities either of uh, people who directly connect with them or people who are unconnected with them but still they know of their, uh, their criminal activities. The second uh, direct evidence uh, which the book deals with is that officials uh, in China used to, uh, often find bitter rivalry between the mayor and the party secretary, between the county magistrate and the party secretary, because this, the party secretary is number one, the mayor is number two, and they often have turf battles. And uh, uh, oftentimes the party secretary and the mayor would all be arrested for corruption. Uh, and uh, uh, but when they were bitter rivalries, they know of each other. They uh, uh, they know of each other's criminal activities, but they would not denounce each other. It's just very strange, right? Because if you could denounce the other, uh, if if you can put send your bitter rival into jail, then of course you will come out ahead. But why don't Chinese officials who are bitter rivals of each other do not provide incriminating evidence against? each other. Uh, uh, if you are familiar with the nuclear weapons doctrine, uh, this is called mutually assured destruction. Uh, that is, they know that uh, the safest spot for them to be is uh, for both of them to be corrupt. Because if, uh, if I'm corrupt, you're corrupt, then I have no advantage if I go to the investigators to denounce you and you have no advantage, you cannot denounce me. Because if you denounce me, I can buy back, denounce you. This changes when one of them is arrested for corruption for entirely unrelated reasons. And in this case, the, uh, the mayor or the party secretary who is arrested first immediately denounces the mayor or denounces the party secretary because that person can gain a huge benefit by providing incriminating uh, uh, evidence. This shows, this, this long-winded story really shows that in, the Ch in local Chinese governments, 
local officials are intimately aware of each other's wrongdoings. And the third piece of evidence is that you, you may have heard of this term. It's called collapse-style corruption. That is, once a government uh, finds one corruption case and they start digging, the entire, uh, they, they quickly arrest a lot of people in the same government agency or local government unit, which means that there, is net, there are networks, overlapping networks of corruption in there. And so, anyway, uh, so this is uh, to show that uh, how we, fi- we can p- find evidence of collusion. Now, how do they collude? It's, uh, collusion sounds simple, but it's actually quite difficult to do, especially for private entrepreneurs. Essentially, a private entrepreneur has two strategies. So if I would like to get piece of this, uh, get a piece of undervalued asset. I have two strategies. Uh, one is to buy off the party secretary. Because the party secretary in the Chinese system is the most powerful official. He decides who gets appointed to which position. Because in this story, you have the success is guaranteed if you can gain the cooperation of five different people in five different agencies. Approaching five different people in five different agencies is very time-consuming. They may not trust you, right? So if you can know, if you can gain access to the party secretary, because the party secretary controls their political future, the party secretary can act as your agent, and the party secretary can coordinate the whole process. So in economic terms, you avoid high transaction costs. So this is a preferred strategy if you can gain, party, gain the cooperation of the party secretary. I call this strategy vertical collusion. You collude with the party secretary, then the party secretary colludes with his underlings. So this uh, very effective, uh, time, uh, 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 very efficient. Uh, there's no cheating because the party secretary can enforce the deal for you, right? Uh, but uh, you have to pay the party secretary more for his service because it's a packaged service. Uh, it's not the value of that piece of assets because you have to pay the party secretary extra for coordination. So the party secretary always gets what I call premium bribes. Uh, you look at party secretary's bribes, you always get more. Uh, and the market re- reflects this. But the problem with this approach is that it is not available to most entrepreneurs. It's available to a select group because the party secretary is very picky. He takes on only blue chip clients well-established local entrepreneurs or successful businessmen because the party secretary is risk-averse too. Uh, You knock on his door and say, here's a million dollars. Can you get me uh, that piece of land? He's going to show you out because he doesn't trust you. Uh, He can only trust people with whom he's dealt with in the past. So uh, that is one more, more model of collusion through the party secretary or vertical uh, 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 
collusion. But what about the vast majority of private entrepreneurs, which cannot gain access to the party secretary, and they have to rely on the second model, second strategy. This is called insider-outsider collusion. And this is very time-consuming. So I'm just a startup, but I have to go through five different government agencies, planning bureau, land bureau, natural resource bureau, finance bureau, and uh, take the bureau directors to dinner, to foot massage. For some reason, they like foot massage parlors. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's very time-consuming. Uh, eventually, you get this done, but when you look at bribes paid to these less officials, much less than the party secretary, so you're factoring transaction costs. So the, these are the two uh, primary models of collusion involving private businessmen and government officials. There's a third model of collusion. This, this uh, is done inside government agencies. These are, I call this these horizontal collusion. That is typically judges uh, and policemen <coughs> and most prevalently state-owned enterprises. Uh, they engage in collusion in order to uh, steal state-owned assets. Uh, now let me give you some numbers to show that uh, corruption is essentially an economic activity. It is, uh, of course, uh, there's a moral aspect to it. There's also a political aspect to it. But the best way of understanding corruption is really through the economic perspective. Because it's a market. It's an illicit market. It's an it's a, uh, underground market, but it still follows market logic. So uh, uh, these are the, sort of the quantitative findings. Uh, you, uh, you will uh, see that they do follow uh, market uh, logic. Uh, the first question is that if we are talking about a network, uh, uh, you call colonial capitalism really networked corruption, how large is the network? How many people are typically involved in a collusion case uh, based on uh, five uh, based on the study I've divided 260 cases into five groups the average size the median size of a network is about seven people it's relatively small that's why you will have overlapping networks in the same government jurisdiction the reason is very straightforward uh, because uh, if you collude with somebody, you are concerned with uh, three things. One is that whether you can actually get something done. Too many people, you can get things done, but it's offset by two other considerations. Uh, the second consideration is what I call profit sharing. If you have too many people, you dilute the profit. If, uh, but if you have too few people, you cannot get things done. And the third is risk, is detection risk. If you have too many people, detection risk is high. If too few people, detection risk is low. So somehow the market, the corruption market has worked out. Seven is the magic number. 
So if uh, it, uh, it does, uh, it avoids all of these problems. It gets the thing, it gets the D down without over, uh, <coughs> excessive detection risks uh, or dilution of profit. Then the second question is that because at the beginning I uh, argue that crony capitalism emerged in China largely because of privatization. In other words, property, state-owned property, could be transferred into private hands. So naturally, you said, can you prove empirically, statistically, that in this process, corruption market would uh, deprive that bribes will reflect the value of property versus service. Because corruption, essentially, corruption involves two kinds of activities. One is to transfer state-owned property at undervalued price, right? So that's one. The other is to provide a service. So what is a service? Uh, the easiest uh, uh, example is uh, uh, you run a red light. And the police comes along, write you a $3,000 ticket. You say, here's $100, forget it. That's service, right? So you buy protection service. So, uh, <coughs> so if you apply economic logic, as you, would see, you would think that evidence will show that in China's corruption market, at least anything is in corruption market all over the world, uh, people always will pay for pay much higher bribes for property than for service in general right so when you look at the data actually uh, you find evidence in my book there are 110 cases involving the, the provision of service policemen judges and environmental protection agency officials. So um, their median corruption income, that is, uh, because you, I always take the median, not uh, the average is, uh, because some are very successful, some are less successful in terms of uh, gaining corruption income. The median corruption income for uh, uh, law enforcement officials who protect organized crime, really bad uh, corruption cases, their median corruption income is 600, total median corruption income is 660,000 yuan, roughly 100,000 US dollars. For judges, it's 760,000 yuan, so talking about 110,000 US dollars. Then for uh, environmental protection agency officials, it's half a million Chinese yuan. So we're talking about like 70,000 uh, plus US dollars. Uh, so just this gives you a, bench, a benchmark for providing services to private entrepreneurs or organized crime. But when you contrast this level of corruption income with the corruption income involving officials who could help private entrepreneurs obtain 
undervalued property. The difference is huge. That is, so these are the differences. Uh, I have 50 cases of officials who collude with private businessmen, primarily in the business of transferring state-owned state assets to private businessmen, and their median corruption income is 9.5 million yuan, which is 1.5, almost 1 million, 1 million, uh, 1 million uh, 0.5 U.S. And that's, what, uh, more than 15 times. So that's, that's quite a contrast. And it shows that the corruption market values property much more than service. And uh, when you look at state-owned enterprise officials who directly control state-owned property, and their median corruption income is 6.4 million yuan. And again, it shows that the value of property. Now, the third question is, does the corruption market uh, reward officials with more power, more handsomely, than officials with less power? In other words, if your rank is higher, do you get more corrupt income? Right, uh, the Chinese word, guan yue da, yue tan. So that's the, uh, is that true? Yeah, well, I think uh, intuitively it should be true, but you really have to have numbers. So based on my uh, 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 sample, it is true, because in one class, in one chapter, I had three levels of officials, county level, uh, city level, or prefecture level, and then provincial level. So you look at that median uh, corrupt income broken down by year. Because by broken down by year is very important. Uh, uh, that is, uh, that actually shows uh, in an even given year when they have this difference in rank, do they actually get more uh, uh, corrupt income? So for a county official, uh, the, uh, the annual corruption income, median annual corruption income, is 370 yuan. So we're talking about 50,000 US dollars. That's pretty good, right? That's, uh, but his immediate boss, a prefecture, a prefecture level official, median corruption income is 600,000, almost 80% more. And for a provincial official, it's 800,000, 40% more. So in other words, uh, so, uh, so, 33% more. In other words, you do see that uh, there's a positive correlation between the amount of power an official has and the amount of bribe income uh, uh, he can generate. And the last official, uh, the last question uh, we have uh, is that one of the advantages for collusion is low detection risk because we protect each other. So in other words, uh, uh, do we have, the question is, do we have ev evidence to show that detection risk is relatively low in the Chinese system? And here is the evidence we have. That is, for a county level official, uh, the, the uh, median duration of corruption, that is, uh, in the Chinese official accounts, of corruption, uh, 
uh, investigators are very helpful to people like me. They always say his first bribe was when and when. And then they will also provide the date of his arrest. So you can calculate the, the length of time during which this particular individual was engaged in corrupt activities. So for a county-level official, the median duration of uh, corruption is 6.5 years. So pretty long, 6.5 years before he could be discovered. For a prefecture-level official, it's 8.3 years. 8.3 years. And for a provincial-level official, is 10.6 years. So in other words, it shows that uh, uh, an official, uh, a corrupt official, if he or she colludes with somebody, uh, has a uh, low detection risk. And even more uh, shockingly, 84% of them actually received promotion during this period. Because when you are promoted, you have to be vetted. You have, you have to interview people. So that shows that the, uh, I think at least uh, the, we can conclude from this, uh, these numbers is that the Chinese system is not very effective in catching corruption among officials. Uh, finally, I want to illustrate for you one very interesting market in China to show you how well developed the corruption market is. An example is uh, from one of the chapters. That is the market for government office. The practice of buying and selling government positions is widespread. Uh, even in the military. Uh, I think uh, this guy, Xu Tai Hao. He was featured uh, at the beginning of the book. He was featured. His story was featured because in the Chinese military system, the political commissar, he's a political commissar, the political commissar controls personnel appointments. So that's his market. And he was supposed to have, when he was arrested, they found, according to official press, a ton of 100 yuan notes sitting in his basement. A ton. That's 100 million. <laughs> and just, it took several trucks to cut away his loot. Uh, but that's because he, he controlled that market. Uh, but the market I'm talking about is much less prestigious. Um, but it's still a market. So the first question is that it's, it's actually a difficult market. Uh, the, first price, the first question is how do you price a position? Uh, when you read Chinese blogs, you will say, oh, this official advertised government positions for sale. I said, that's nonsense. I'm not seeing any real evidence for this. Because if, if you advertise that stock, uh, he's giving his, himself away. Uh, he's going to be arrested, even in a place like China. Uh, so the, uh, the challenge is, how do you determine if I want to buy this position? How much do I pay? Do I overpay, I waste money. Underpay, I insult the party secretary. Right? And probably somebody else will get it. The market actually works out this problem very efficiently. It's, again, this is from the qualitative description of the corruption cases. Chinese buyers in this market follow two strategies. The first strategy leverages personal contact, relationship with the party secretary, uh, and avoids overpayment. Uh, 
And this is strategy. This is an installment strategy. You do not pay the bribe in one, in one payment. Typically involves three payments. The first payment is a down payment. It's a very strategic payment because you want to signal to the to the uh, seller that you are interested, but you do not want to frighten him away, or you you do not uh, you want to get him hooked uh, without risking too much money or without risking the entire business uh, deal. If you put too much money in there, probably he will think you're up to no good. So you want to put the right amount. So the first payment typically is a gift given around three well-known Chinese, uh, uh, two uh, widely observed Chinese festivals, uh, moon festival. Why moon festival? Because you always give out moon cakes. So on the, underneath the moon cake, you put something in there. Uh, and... Uh, or uh, Chinese New Year. Chinese New Year is an uh, occasion for exchanging gifts. And the third one is when the party secretary, for some reason, is hospitalized. So you go to the hospital, always carry some fruit uh, for the patient, and put something on it. So if the party secretary, because you sometimes you say, you do not say there's, here's, there's cash, you always say that, and the party secretary knows that there's something in the if the party secretary accepts the first down payment, you, you're fine. You do not tell the party secretary what you are up to. It's simply, it's a, uh, it's a hook. The second time, if the party secretary accepts your first payment, then you want to make the second payment. The second payment is key because this is when you tell the party secretary what you want. And then if the party secretary delivers, you go to the party secretary, thanks him, and make what I call closing payment. That's the last payment. And it works beautifully because it avoids overpayment. When you look at the median price for a county position, what I call a county bureau uh, director, it's about 200, no, it's about 20,000 yuan. That's ridiculous cheap. And I'll explain why it's so cheap. So you avoid overpayment, and this strategy works. But what if you don't know the party secretary? Then you use a much more risky strategy. I call this blind bidding. That is, you don't know. Uh, uh, you want to typically overpay. You want to get that position. You would make a one-time payment, and the one-time payment typically is very, very hard. Sus- uh, substantial. Uh, so that's uh, so. In other words, ma- the, uh, the cr- in this market, there there are ways to discover the right price. The second uh, interesting thing about this uh, market is that uh, when uh, uh, there are several instances in which the uh, the official reports and court documents. Uh, provide exact amount of bribe for a particular position. So the question is, do the, these bribes reflect the potential corruption income from these positions? Because if it's a market, you buy a position, the only reason you buy a position is that you think you're going to make more returns 
from that position. So uh, if uh, if that if position A is going to generate more corruption income in the future, you're going to pay more for that position, right? So that's simple. The market works exactly like that. So you go down the list, the highest list, uh, uh, the highest price will be paid for the most lucrative local positions, finance bureau, land bureau, uh, 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 commerce and industry, industry and commerce bureau, because they are already regulatory bureaus, and locally owned, state-owned enterprises. And the most surprising thing is the local education bureau director. Because the local education bureau director is a very powerful official. He gives out contracts for building school buildings and for purchasing textbooks. So that so in other words, you, you, you can see that the market, uh, again, has, uh, is efficient in that sense. And the third one is that what happens when there are multiple bidders, right? Because uh, yeah, obviously, if, if that positioning is attractive, several individuals will bid for that position, and the party secretary will be in this country. To whom would he sell the position. The party secretary will sell the position to the highest bidder. So again, following the market principle. And now, the follow-up question, what if, what happens to those bidders who lost? Do they get refunds? Do they get their money back? Yes, they do get their money back. So the party secretary is an honorable thief. <laughs> in other words, uh, he's not completely honorable. In at least one case, that uh, he didn't refund 100%. He refunded 80%. I think 20% is a service charge. <laughs> and uh, uh, finally, the, uh, oh, no, two more questions. Is that, uh, because the size of the market differs uh, enormously across, juri across jurisdictions, uh, ver uh, vertically. Uh, county is a much smaller jurisdiction a city is a much bigger jurisdiction. So for researchers, a natural question is, which market functions more efficiently? Whether a county market or the city market? How do you find out? Again, again you say, well, only people like you would be bothered with these trivial questions. It's actually very important because it, it illustrates how the corruption market works. When you look at data, it's very clear. A county-level market functions much more efficiently than a city-level market because in a county-level market, there's not much underpayment, there's not much overpayment. The median price, this, when you look at the data, the standard deviation or cluster around the median price. So in other words, they are, the, med uh, the, the pricing is quite uniform. But if you look at the city-level market, there's huge variations, like three standard deviations. So in other words, there's a lot of overpayment or there's a lot of underpayment in the city market. And the reason is it's quite simple. Information cost. In a small county-level market, information is easier. And also, it is, remember, the first strategy, the down payment strategy it is a lot easier to gain access to a party secretary in a county 
than a party secretary in a city, a much bigger place, a much busier person. So you you can pursue installment plan, and also you know what you are buying in the county market. You know this position can generate so much, and then you're going to pay that much. So the <coughs> the last question really has to do with the ridiculously low amount of bribes that can get you a government position. Why such huge discount? A county level uh, position, as I said, mean price is about twenty thousand yuan. That's what. Three thousand U.S. dollars, four thousand Australian dollars, and get you a pretty uh, important position. You, they're pretty give it away. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I have the following explanations. That is, uh, for a party uh, of, uh, secretary, his primary. Uh, uh, first of all, he discount because the power to appoint has an expiration date. A party secretary stays in his position for about three years, so if he does not sell, this time he doesn't have. So it's it's meaningless. So it, it uh, his power will be wasted. So it's better to gain some income. But the real explanation is that remember vertical collusion, because the party secretary's most important source of income is from private businessmen. Eighty-four percent of the people who engage in buying and selling office also engage, including with private businessmen. But in order to collude with private businessmen, he actually need co-conspirators. So, by giving away government positions or selling government positions at very steep discounts, he secures the cooperation of these people. So that's the main. Driver, main consideration for his uh, uh, for the uh, <coughs> steep discount. So uh, let me just conclude by uh, saying that why this kind of collusion generates what you might call dynamics of regime decay. Because collusion uh, um, uh, Collusion by government agents results in three dynamics, or creates three dynamics. One is that when you look, go through these cases, you find that Chinese officials have really privatized state power because they they use public authority has become an instrument for private use, and in that sense, that the state.、Uh, Becomes much weaker, and the second dynamic is that the loyalty of these officials is to their patron, not to the party, because it's only the patron that can decide decide to uh, uh, decide which positions they are going to be appointed, how much corrupt income they are going to generate. So their loyalty.、Uh, Is not to the party, but to the patron. So, in other words, the party becomes much weaker. And third dynamic in this story is that it is really a story of bad money driving out good money. As you can see, that in this capitalist corruption market, currently capitalist corruption market, 
only the unscrupulous people can get get ahead. What if if you cannot have corruption income to buy that position? You're not going to get that position. And if you buy that position, then you're going to get more corrupt income, and then with corrupt income, you're going to bid more more positions. So it is a, a perverse mechanism that over time will lead to really the internal deterioration of the system. Uh, and uh, I think with these thoughts in your mind, you may now have a much deeper appreciation of uh, Mr. Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. And indeed, if you take a look at the book, I quote General Secretary Xi Jinping at the beginning of each chapter. He's been, uh, his quotes are very, very helpful in identifying the problems I try to study in this book. Thank you. Well, uh, Shishini, uh, very much means um, in uh, pay for an extraordinary anatomy of details that were unknown to me and I expect uh, to many people. Um, for someone with a poor throat, you gave us a very good account and lengthy account of a very fundamental dynamic. You've kindly agreed, since you still have a little bit of voice power, to, to take some questions. So, uh, given that we have only about a quarter of an hour, could you make um, them questions rather than long comments? And please, could you say your name? There is a microphone roving around. Uh, shall we start... First with this gentleman here, and then someone at the back. Well, thank you very much, Professor. Uh, and your Mike, name, please. Michael Ahrens from Transparency International. Uh, from, what, from your analysis and the current campaign, the logic, I think, of the market is that the price for the party's secretary will have risen dramatically if those hundreds of thousands of people engaged in the campaign against party officials is at all working. Because of you have wonderful access to these records in China, it appears, are you able to access where, what the recent market is like? Is it rising as, to, as an indicator of the success of the campaign? Yeah. Well, as scholars, you always uh, uh, you, uh, you face two really difficult problems. One is that you want to be ahead of everybody else. So if you have enough data, you publish, right? Uh, but you don't have the best data available. So if I were to write a book today, I will have much, much, much better data. Because in the last three years, uh, the Ch- uh, two years, the Chinese Supreme Court asked local governments, go- uh, local courts, to release or to put all their judgments online. So you could actually, you could gain a lot more uh, insights and evidence. Uh, But I was too late. Uh, uh, I did not use, because I used some, uh, but by the time I closed the database, I did not. So that's a regret. If I had to do it again today, uh, if I have to write a book again, the book will have probably more data. 
about high quality data. But the, in direct response to your another element of your uh, in your question, that is, how is the market functioning today? The market has been suspended. There's no trading in the market because of the anti-corruption campaign. The, the anti-corruption campaign does not destroy the market. The supply is there, the demand is there. So the market is there. But the suppliers are not meeting the buyers because the risks are too high. They cannot, uh, on the margins, some deals occur, but the bulk of the market has been uh, suspended. So we do not know. I, if I have to guess, when the market trading resumes in some future date, you will see a huge spike in market because it all reflects foregone profit. <laughs> Hi, Professor. Thank you. That was a great talk. My name is Gabriel. Um, two closely related questions. Um, one is, um, how difficult is it for um, an outsider to enter the inside of the collusion circle? And the related question is, um, how difficult is it for a wealthy foreigner to penetrate the Chinese corruption market? Well, I, I'm the, asking for uh, a friend. <laughs> uh, in my database, I have not found foreigners. It's uh, because uh, I deal mostly with county, city-level officials. Uh, well, those in the database. And, uh, and they don't have the access to foreign businessmen. Uh, I, I think if you're a real tycoon, then you deal with princelings, with uh, children of very senior officials. And, uh, and for tycoons, it's not difficult because the same logic which I outlined that blue chip, they take on only blue chip clients, applies to that story. Uh, then the, uh, the first part of, I forgot your, uh, first part of the question is, uh, what's, what's it? Oh, oh, also, yes. Actually, it depends on your creativity. It is not how do you, uh, uh, how creative you are. That is, uh, I'll just give you one example. This is a, uh, upstart real estate developer who wanted a piece of land. He couldn't get close to the party secretary. But he knew the party secretary's mistress, where she lives. She went to see her, put down half a million Chinese yuan. Then the mistress does the job for him. So you have to be creative. <laughs> so, Professor? Um, I have a question about the role, the, the role that the Chinese judiciary play in the prosecution and trial of corruption of office, officials. So in Mr. Xi Jinping's campaign yes. against corruption, so do you think the Chinese judiciary has a certain degree of autonomy in the exercise of the judicial power to which they are lawfully entitled? Or do you think the campaign against corruption is merely a matter of politics, not a matter of law? Okay. Thank you very much. This is a great question. Because if you look at the Chinese legal system, 
the judici- uh, not the judiciary, the prosecutor's office. The, the, uh, the prosecutor's office should have the most amount of power in investigating, determining uh, the charges and filing charges, and the judiciary will uh, determine guilt. This doesn't work in the Chinese system. All of the investigation and determination of guilt is done by one agency, and that's not a legal entity. It's a party entity. It's called Discipline Inspection Committee. So Chinese anti-corruption campaign is conducted in an extra-legal framework. This is a, an entity that is not subject to judicial oversight, and Chinese Communist Party officials who are investigated by this committee have absolutely no protection, constitutional protection. They cannot see their lawyers. They can be detained indefinitely. And the Chinese term is Gui. It's called you have to confess at a given designated time within a designated period of time. So the problem with official data is that this process uh, may not generate the most accurate information because it can be uh, a horse trade, right? Uh, uh, well, it, it, it can be bargaining. That is, you come in, the, uh, the investigator says, you confess to this, and we're going to charge you with this. It's um, almost like the American plea bargain system. So for researchers, the amount of corruption income can be suspect. But I think the problem with the Chinese anti-corruption system today is precisely as you asked, is a very politicized system. It is a totally untransparent system. So it lacks credibility. Hi, Professor. I enjoy your talk. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is relating to uh, corruption in the POA, the buying and yes, trading yes. of positions. If I remember rightly, in the 80s, there was a period when there was a lot of POA activity in running businesses, brothels, etc., etc., and that yes. was closed down. Yes. Is this a relapse, and how extensive is it? Uh, in the current context, a lot of people talk about strategic friction turning into a hot war. Yes. And, of course, if you have you know, corruptly appointed officers, uh, you degrade your yes. fighting competence. Yeah. Uh, how extensive is it, and uh, what are external analyses as to its uh, uh, yeah. uh, degree? Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, in the 80s and up to 1997, the PLA was allowed to run its own for-profit businesses. But in 1997, the Chinese government stopped it. Uh, so uh, before 1997, the PLA was engaged in, you might call, petty, oh, not, sometimes not so petty, uh, garden variety corrupt activities, mainly smuggling. Because the PLA uh, could... Uh, import stuff or they, uh, their warships could not be inspected. Uh, so, and also the PLA had low uh, access to subsidized fuel, so you could sell fuel on the open market. So that, but 
the kind of corruption cases involving PLA in the last couple of years when we, well, when the, during the anti-corruption campaign, uh, one was as a buying and selling of uh, commissions. The other is real estate development because the PLA was given enormous uh, fund uh, 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 appropriations for upgrading its uh, barracks. So it had a lot of uh, land to play with. It had, uh, it had high contractors. So when you look, go down the list of PLA generals who were arrested for corruption, you will find that one particular group is overrepresented. And these are the logistics <laughs> department uh, officials. So, uh, but overall, it's very hard to find evidence, detailed uh, press coverage of corruption inside the PLA. I think we've come to an end, but I'm going to abuse my powers as chair and ask you um, about the possibly the biggest thesis that runs through this book. Yes. Um, the spookiest thesis. And a number of commentators have pointed it out. You write, one of the inevitable consequences of crony capitalism in China is the decay of its Leninist regime. Um, I wondered if you could explain that a little better, because a lot hangs on it. It's a, it's a feeling that runs through the book. And in this country, uh, the thought that we might go all the way with the USA is actually beginning to cause some discomfort. A lot of us wouldn't want that to happen. On the other hand, the collapse of China is also not very welcome news for us. So is it that you bring us bad news? I mean, really bad news. Uh, perhaps you could say more about that and why it is that at a number of points in the book you do speak about inevitability. Why? Uh, well, I think if you want a very good description of decay of the system, all you need to do is to read Xi Jinping's speech. There's a little pamphlet. I don't know whether it's available in uh, English. It's called uh, Xi Jinping uh, uh, Fighting Corruption and Building Integrity. And he lays out in very graphic terms how decaying the system has become, or how much decay the system has uh, experienced. Uh, I would view decay in the following terms. One sense of decay is clearly you will talk about the moral decay, the corruption of the organization itself, because uh, this is uh, the Communist Party is supposed to be a party guided by a set of principles, ideological principles, and when you look at their daily conduct, totally opposite of those principles. And second is I look at who these officials are serving primarily, that you find that A, they're serving primarily themselves, they're part of a clique, and their loyalty, as I said at the beginning, not to the party, but to this clique. And third is that uh, these groups effectively divide up the spoils. When you look at the mayor, the mayor would carve up so many projects for him. The party secretary would have so many projects for him. So that, again, that situation divides up public authority, turns public authority into private 
market. But the mo uh, another source of decay is that in this mark, uh, if in this system, uh, it uh, over time it can well, initially corruption serves as a lubricant for the system. Corruption uh, is a way for the system to reward its officials. Otherwise, why why would it work for the system, right? Because it's it's not exactly working for. Unit of Sydney, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's very tough work. Um, so it's a way. But over time, when corruption becomes really serious, then it creates the opposite problem. That is, somebody like Bo Xilai or Xi Jinping can come in and do a thorough house cleaning because people like Xi Jinping can be genuinely worried about the Communist Party, because this is Communist Party, when he look at, looks at it, it's, it's a party that clearly is on its way to use his own term on its way to the history's dustbin. So, uh, so that, that can, if the party launches anti-corruption campaign to clean up the system, then the system can freeze up, because the system all of a sudden loses its incentive structure. So you either allow the system to rot or the system becomes paralyzed. So that's why I think the sort of a, the problem of decay. And of course, if the unity is gone. Instead of a unified, a relatively unified system, now you have really bitter rivalry among the ruling elites. So on that um, cheerful note, um, I wanted to thank you very much, Shishini, for uh, joining us tonight, uh, an extraordinary presentation. Uh, I'm sure that we will go away thinking about this, and when next we hear the word China, we will be thinking twice or three times about uh, what comes to our head. Uh, we wish you well uh, in your remaining days in Australia. Uh, Min Sin Pei has already been on uh, Late Night Live. He's appearing in a number of other media settings in the next few days. We're working him quite hard, and he's being very gracious. I'd just like you to join me in, in wishing him all the best and thanking him for tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Wonderful.